and welcome to City Breaks Bath, episode 14, the very last episode in the Bath series and the third of my ideas for a day out from Bath, should you feel like getting out a little bit further and exploring the surroundings. In this case, driving up to an hour south to Glastonbury. If you are already familiar with the name Glastonbury, I'm guessing that might well be because of its music festival, which takes place most years in June, on a farm actually several miles outside the town, but the rest of the world knows it as Glastonbury Festival. Or perhaps you've come across its mystical connotations. Sitting as it does in the Vale of Avalon, with its connections to Arthur and Guinevere, to Joseph of Arimathea, even to Christ and the Holy Grail. Or perhaps you've seen pictures of Glastonbury Tor, an ancient church tower still sitting on a little hill that's only 500 feet high or so, but which dominates the Avalon marshes all around it, often sitting in a sort of hazy light that gives the whole area a mystical quality. I think the legends is actually quite a good place to start, so I'm going to recount three legends, all of which have their roots in Glastonbury. The first one is the legend of Joseph of Arimathea, referenced in the words of William Blake's song Jerusalem, which draws on the myth that Christ himself may have visited Glastonbury, or if not, then his contemporary Joseph of Arimathea may well have walked on England's mountains green. So, what do we actually know about that? Well, in the Gospels, it is recorded that Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy follower of Christ, and that he was the person who buried Christ's body in his tomb after the crucifixion. The legend of Joseph, entitled Joseph d'Arimathea, was written in the 12th century, so more than a millennium after the events, and in that legend, he was said to be the keeper of the Holy Grail, so the cup which Christ used at the Last Supper. The story varies according to which version you read. In one version, Joseph receives the Grail from an apparition of Christ and sends it to Britain with his followers. Other versions tell us that Joseph himself travelled to Britain, bringing the Holy Grail with him and burying it in a secret place said to have been just below Glastonbury Tor. There is today a spring exactly in that spot known as Chalice Well. And I'll be mentioning that again later as one of the places you might want to visit if you do spend a day in Glastonbury. Some versions of the myth are also set around Glastonbury Abbey. It's said, for example, that Joseph and twelve of his followers established the first monastery at Glastonbury. There's also a version in which Christ himself came to and helped with the building work. And it's believed that Joseph was buried somewhere at the Abbey. A legend which goes back even further is the one about King Arthur. The story being that he and Guinevere were buried on the site of Glastonbury Abbey. Arthur is believed to have lived in the 5th and 6th centuries, known of course as the Dark Ages, therefore not much evidence from then. But there is evidence in texts from the 9th century, and again in the writings of Geoffrey of Monmouth from the 12th century, that Camelot, Arthur's kingdom, was sited quite near to Glastonbury at Cadbury Castle. I have to say that some historians doubt that he existed at all. Others think he was a warrior king who led the Britons against the Anglo-Saxons. What we do have better records of is the fact that in 1191, the monks at Glastonbury Abbey announced that they had found the graves of Arthur and Guinevere. The story is told by a historian of the day, one Gerald of Wales, who says that Henry II himself had told them where to dig. He had got his information from an old Welsh bard, and sure enough, 
they found, quote, encoffined in a hollow oak, the remains of the king and queen, with the following words engraved on it. Here lies buried the renowned King Arthur with Guinevere, his second wife, in the Isle of Avalon. I have to add that quite a lot of modern historians are more of the opinion this was actually made up. We know that there was a terrible fire in the Abbey in 1184, and the allegation is that maybe the monks decided this would be a way to raise funds. That perhaps they knew that people would travel to the Abbey if they thought it really was the burial site of Arthur and Guinevere. Perhaps they would make donations. But it also has to be said that the said remains took pride of place in the Abbey for over 300 years until the moment of the dissolution of the monasteries when sadly they disappeared. And a third legend connected to Glastonbury is that of Gog and Magog, they being a pair of very ancient trees with links to the ancient Vale of Avalon. You can collect a leaflet from the Glastonbury Tourist Office which will give you a map showing you how to walk there from the top of Glastonbury High Street. And here's a quotation then from the description. Known as the Oaks of Avalon, and claimed by some to be over a thousand years old, the two trees are said to be a traditional point of entry onto the island, and part of a ceremonial druidic avenue of oak trees which approached the tour. Instructions are given then for the walk, and telling you what you'll pass en route, for example, a cottage, one Jacobi cottage, which used to be St. James's Slipper Chapel, i.e. the place where pilgrims would leave their footwear when they were going to climb the tour barefoot as an act of penance. You are led along other lanes and over stiles, passing other points, for example, the place where, quote, the Michael and Mary Earth Energy Lines cross over the lane, and eventually you will reach the site of the two trees. Unfortunately, as the leaflet tells us, Although both trees are still standing, only one of them is still alive. And that is Magog, because sadly Gog has died, although it is still standing. So, I hope you're getting the flavour of Glastonbury. It's good to know all those things, I think, if you go to visit. But what you'll actually find if you drive south from Bath is a little town with a very interesting high street, full of all kinds of alternative shops that you can look round, and a collection of sites which is very interesting to visit, namely Glastonbury Abbey in the town centre and then a little way out, but still only a few minutes walk from the top of the high street, Chalice Well and Glastonbury Tor. So let's have a look then at those things in a bit more detail, starting with the Abbey. It's in ruins, but there's plenty enough left for you to be able to get a really good sense of what it would have looked like in its heyday. And if you go to visit, you are standing on a site where the original church was built by the Saxons in the 7th century, a building which was enlarged in the 10th century by someone who's very famous in Glastonbury, namely the abbot at the time, one St Dunstan. He it was who went on to become Archbishop of Canterbury. He was one of the two archbishops who crowned Edgar in Bath Abbey, if you remember, in 973, and the local secondary school is named after him, St Dunstan's. Changes to the Abbey were ongoing, though, because when the Normans conquered England in 1066, they too decided to add to the magnificent buildings already on this site. King Henry II sent his chamberlain, one Ralph Fitzstephen, to work on the site, and impressive carved sculptures were added, illustrating the life of the Virgin, richly painted in bright colours. Traces of the colour remain, 
And if you go into parts of the abbey, you will see pictures showing what it's believed it would have looked like. And there's a whole range of ochre and red and blue, green, white, black, gold, all to be seen. We know that at the time of the Doomsday Book, 1086, Glastonbury Abbey was the richest monastery in the entire country. But then, as already mentioned, 1184 came the Great Fire, when so many of its ancient treasures are believed to have been destroyed. The monks, of course, set about rebuilding the abbey, and it's at this point, in 1191, when it's believed that bones from the bodies said to be those of King Arthur and Queen Guinevere were found in a deep grave in the cemetery. Rebuilding continued, the great church was reconsecrated, services began again on Christmas Day in the year 1213. The bones all this while were being kept, and in 1278 they were reburied in the abbey church itself. A black marble tomb was constructed to contain them, and the king himself, King Edward I, along with his queen, Philippa, came for the service. And this is the tomb which disappeared after the dissolution of the monasteries. By the 14th century, Glastonbury was still the second wealthiest abbey in the whole of Britain, having been overtaken just by Westminster Abbey, and we know that the abbot of Glastonbury lived here in considerable splendour, wielding really quite a lot of power. Accepting visits from pilgrims, and even on one occasion from the king himself, this time Henry VII. But in common with so many other abbeys and monasteries across England, the abbey was devastated by the period known as the Dissolution. We know that in 1536, during Henry VIII's reign, there were more than 800 monasteries, nunneries and friaries here in Britain. By 1541, so only five years later, there were none at all. More than 10,000 monks and nuns had been dispersed, buildings had been seized, they were taken over by the crown, which sold them off or leased them to new occupants. You might remember me making mention of that at Laycock in episode 12. Here in Glastonbury, the story was very dramatic. The abbot at the time, Richard Whiting, refused to surrender to the king. Henry duly sent an agent to Glastonbury to charge Richard Whiting with treason and burglary. Treason, I suppose he had committed because he was refusing to carry out the king's orders. Burglary, I imagine, was more of a trumped-up charge. But his punishment was dreadful. He was dragged through the streets of the town, from the abbey gate right up to the tor, where he was hanged, drawn and quartered, along with two of his monks, John Thorne and Roger James. The abbot's head was then placed over the great gate of the abbey, and the four pieces of his body which had been hacked apart were displayed in nearby towns, Wells, Ilchester, Bridgewater, and somewhere near Bath, so that everybody would know what fate awaited anybody else who decided to refused to carry out the king's orders. The abbey buildings were stripped of anything which could be sold, the lead, the glass, the bells, the ironwork, sculptures, the library, although in fact about 40 volumes survived, perhaps someone had had the foresight to hide them, and so came to an end over a thousand years of Christian worship at the abbey. I've seen a list of the 40 or so abbots who had served there between 601 and 1525, and what wonderful names some of them had. So, for example, the very first abbot in 601 was one Wargrit Ladamund Brigoret, and the one in 705 even more unpronounceable, but I'll have a go. Beorvalt Altbeorth Kerngiesel Guba. 
Thank Heaven's End for 943 when it was Dunstan. And later one Henry of Blois, actually the grandson of William the Conqueror and nephew of Henry I, so it was obviously a very prestigious post. And the last abbot then, as already stated, appointed in 1525, Richard Whiting. So, if you go to the Abbey today, what you'll find is 36 acres, plus the ruins. The foundations are there, quite a few parts are still standing. Enough, I think, to get a vision of what the original building would have looked like. The most complete part, in fact, being the Lady Chapel, said to have been built by Joseph of Arimathea himself, and referred to, therefore, as the holiest earth of England. Also the site, or the alleged site, of Arthur's tomb. There is lots in the grounds to indicate something of how the monks lived. So there are two ponds where they kept their fish, there are orchards, there's a herb garden, and a building, the abbot's kitchen, which is in fact the only part left entirely whole. And if you go inside, you can see fires and displays showing how animals were roasted on spits there, how bread was baked. And in the attached museum, you can get really quite an idea of what life was like in the abbey in medieval times. We know that the monks lived according to the rule of St. Benedict, taking vows of obedience, self-denial and celibacy. And just to give a flavour, here's an extract from chapter 66 of the rule of St. Benedict. The monastery should be organised so that all its needs, that is to say such things as water, a mill, a garden and various crafts, may be met within its premises so that the monks have no need to wander round outside it, for that does not profit their souls at all. We know that much of their time was spent on what I've seen described as, quote, a gruelling timetable of church services extending through day and night. We know that they slept in a dormitory. That was laid down as a rule by St. Benedict again, chapter 22, quote, All should sleep in one place. The brethren are to sleep each in a single bed. The younger brethren should not have their beds together, but dispersed among the seniors. We know that most of the food they ate came either from the abbey gardens or from the monastic estate more generally. There's a building called the Abbot's Fish House, for example, in a village called Mere, some five or six miles away from the abbey itself. The kitchener, person in charge of the catering, would receive staple foods like beans and flour, fresh fruits from the estate farms, and the diet was basically vegetarian, so lots of beans, eggs, cheese, fruit and vegetables, and a pound of bread plus ale to drink. In addition to the kitchen, which survives, they had a buttery, which was where they stored their drink, a pantry to store food, a brew house and a bakehouse, a number of different fireplaces, one for baking, one for roasting, and we know that Henry III himself ate here in the year 1497. The rule of St. Benedict says that the daily meal should be, quote, at the sixth or ninth hour, and that, quote, there would always be served two cooked dishes, a full pound of bread should be enough for a day, and frugality should be the rule on all occasions. So, aside from the many services during the night and at various points during the day, and allowing time too for all the work that went into producing the food that they needed, what else were the monks doing? They met daily in the chapter house, where they would discuss spiritual matters and the running of the estate. They would receive novice monks and be kept informed by the abbot. The rule of St. Benedict, chapter 3, for example, states that, quote, 
Whenever anything important has to be done in the monastery, the abbot must assemble the whole community and explain what is under consideration. They had a study and a library believed to have contained about 500 books. At least that was the number mentioned in a catalogue dating from 1278. We know they had a scriptorium, so a place where they could study and where monks spent time copying out texts. And the list of books on the catalogue does give an idea of the interest that they had, so ranging really a lot further than only religion. So yes, there were books of scriptures, of course, but there was also Pliny's Natural History, there were classical poets, they read histories and romances, there were dictionaries and grammars, law books, books on medicine, books on philosophy. One John Leyland visited the Abbey quite soon before the dissolution, and he commented on the number of books in the library and on their high quality, writing, quote, All the relics of most sacred antiquity, of which there is so great a number, that it is not equally paralleled in Britain. Scarcely had I crossed the threshold when the mere sight of the most ancient books took my mind with an awe or stupor of some kind. In addition to work and study and prayer, the monks did charitable acts. In the early 1500s, for example, they were running an almshouse for ten poor widows who wore black dresses, embroidered with the arms of Joseph of Arimathea, and they ran a hospice known as the Pilgrim's Hospice, so a place where people could be given sanctuary or healing when they were unwell. And actually there's a sign of that in the high street today. If you come out of the abbey and turn right and go up the high street, one of the very first buildings on your left is the Georgian Pilgrim Pub. The abbey was also licensed to hold fairs and feast days. In the year 1243, for example, they were granted permission from the king to hold a six-day fair up in the chapel of St Michael on top of the Tor, a fair which would end on Michaelmas Day, the 29th of September. As recently as the 1980s, schoolchildren in Glastonbury were given the day off in September, just after term had begun, for Tor Fair. So as you look round and see the museum and all the information there, you really do get the idea that this was an absolutely thriving community for centuries. And no day in Glastonbury, I would suggest, is complete without having a look round. It's actually quite a nice place to linger as well. You're welcome, for example, to picnic in the grounds. So really, you could certainly spend half a day there, I would say. And the other must-do in the town of Glastonbury is surely climbing the Tor, that little hill, 520 feet in height, which overlooks the flat marshland in all directions. So if you climb up there, you'll get the most marvellous views of the Quantocks and the Mendips right out as far as the Bristol Channel. A real sense of the glorious countryside in which the little town of Glastonbury is set. Exactly as with the Abbey, with the Tor too, there are both Christian and mythical connections. It is said, for example, that the hill here was the home of the Celtic Winter King and that every year he would fight the Summer King as the seasons changed. The Winter King was said to be the Lord of the Underworld who protected the dead on their way to Paradise and who also ruled over the Vale of Avalon. There's evidence of at least four Christian churches on this site, the earliest one dating from Saxon times. And the little tower which you'll find at the top is the remains of one of these churches built, it's believed, in the 14th century. Now only some of the stone tower remains, but we know that it had an altar made of Purbeck marble 
and that it was decorated with stained glass and decorative mosaic tiles on the floor. It was probably actually the Monastery of St Michael on the Tor, a second smaller abbey linked to the much grander Glastonbury Abbey. But it too was demolished during the dissolution of the monasteries so that only the tower remains. Today I think it would be true to say that it's less for its Christian connections and more for its mystical qualities that it is well known and visited by pilgrims from actually all over the world. I saw in one guidebook, for example, a reference to its quote, rich history of spiritual pilgrimage, its magical healing energies and sacred sites. There is, for example, the myth of Glastonbury Zodiac, first put forward in 1927 by one Catherine Maltwood, an artist but someone with an interest in the occult as well, who claimed that a huge astrological zodiac had been carved into the land surrounding the Tor, and that the Tor itself represented the figure Aquarius. It had, she thought, been constructed approximately 5,000 years ago. The modern goddess movement has links to Glastonbury too, some choosing to live there, others visiting on pilgrimages, particularly at the time of the annual procession when an effigy of a goddess is processed up the tour. Glastonbury Tour always makes some television appearances at the time of Glastonbury Festival, and if you remember the opening ceremony of the 2012 Olympics in London, you may recall that there was a model based on Glastonbury Tour incorporated into that. They put a tree up on the top instead of the tower, but it was the mound where all the athletes who entered the stadium displayed their flags. So, a little moment of global recognition for Glastonbury. If you're going to spend a whole day in Glastonbury, there are a couple of other little sites that you may wish to visit, one being Chalice Well, just down the hill from the Tor, said to be the place where Joseph of Arimathea buried the Holy Grail, and the reason why King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table came to Glastonbury. They were searching for it. The water running out of the spring is reddish in colour because of red iron deposits, and that too has led to other legends, for example, the idea that it represents the blood of Christ springing forth at the very place where the Holy Grail had been buried. The well is surrounded by gardens, altogether a lovely place to visit, which describes itself as follows in its leaflet. Quote, it is a garden of many rooms, each with different qualities and planting, all designed to connect us to nature and the source of life. As you wander through the gardens, there are many ways to sense and experience the flow and energy of the water. Features such as the wellhead over the spring, the cascade, rill, flow form and pools invite the water to move and behave in various ways, which in turn inform, delight, excite, calm or provoke inner reflection. And then on the other side of the town, a little bit further out than the Tor, there is Wirial Hill. Its very name, a combination of the words weary and all, an indication of the legend connected with it, i.e. that when Joseph of Arimathea arrived in Glastonbury, he climbed up to the top of the hill and, exhausted, thrust his staff into the ground and lay down for a rest. By the morning, it is said, his staff had taken root and grown into a tree to be known as the Holy Thorn. By the 1530s, there were known to be three thorn trees flourishing on Wirial Hill, all very unusual because they flowered twice, once in the spring, around Easter time, and a second time at Christmas, so constantly illustrating the link with Joseph of Arimathea and underlining the idea that they may indeed be holy thorns. 
in the Civil War, Puritan soldiers cut them down because they thought this was all superstitious nonsense. But it's said that local people had kept cuttings, which they replanted, and it's believed that the thorns growing in Glastonbury today are, in fact, descended from those cuttings. It is a custom that every year at Christmas, a branch from the Glastonbury thorn is sent to the Queen, who, it is said, has it on her breakfast table on Christmas morning. This being a custom that dates from when a cutting was sent to Queen Anne, wife of King James I. Every year in December, local school children gather round one of the thorn trees, the one in St John's Churchyard, halfway up the high street, where they sing carols and the oldest child takes a cutting, which is then sent to wherever the Queen is spending Christmas, i.e. normally at Sandringham, I think. If you have any stamps from 1986 in your collection, you might be able to spot that the Christmas stamps from that year featured, indeed, the Glastonbury Thorn. There is a rather sad postscript to this story, which is that in 2010, the thorn tree growing on Weiriel Hill was vandalised, and the head of the arboretum at the Royal Botanical Gardens, no less, was called in to help. He grafted some of the remains onto a hawthorn rootstock, grew some new saplings which were replanted, but in fact there was a second instance of vandalism a year or two after that, and today the thorns grow in the St John's Churchyard in Glastonbury High Street, and also there is one within the Abbey Grounds, which you'll see if you go and visit, where, one assumes, it's safe from nighttime marauders. Just as an interesting little postscript which takes us back to the original story of the Holy Thorn, there was an interesting event in 1753, the British calendar was altered to bring Britain into line with Europe. Oh dear, we've heard that before. And 11 days disappeared from the month of September. So naturally, everyone was wondering what would happen now. Would the thorn indeed flower at Christmas as it usually did, or not? And there was a report in a publication of 1753 entitled The Gentleman's Magazine, which explains what happened. Quote, a vast concourse of people attended the noted thorn on Christmas Day, new style, but to their great disappointment there was no appearance of its blowing, which made them watch it narrowly on the 5th of January, the Christmas Day old style, when it blowed as usual. I think blow must mean bloom. Naturally, the good people of Britain had the sense to move their calendar back and reclaim the stolen 11 days. And so now every year the thorn does bloom reliably, just in time for Christmas, and all is well. Another thing that I would definitely recommend doing when you visit Glastonbury is a wander up the high street, where you will find all kinds of amazing shops which congregate there, owned by a whole range of people with what you might call alternative interests. So let me just read you the names of a few of the emporia that you'll find there. Harvest Moon, Yin Yang, The Goddess and the Green Man, Wildwood, the Excalibur Café, Enlightenment. You get the picture. And if you need some essential oils or some spellcraft supplies, I quote, or would like to visit a tarot card reader, it's all there for you in the high street and in the one or two little passageways which lead off it. It's also a high street for the population in general with, oh, I don't know, tour estate agents and the war memorial and so on. And another thing it's quite nice to do if you've got a little bit of time to wander about would be to collect the leaflet from the tourist office on the mural trail because you can walk round Glastonbury to, I think it's now 26 sites, where various artists and volunteers and sponsors have put together a mural, their stated aim being to, quote, 
keep Glastonbury colourful. And further on in the leaflet, it informs us that, quote, In the murals, you can see the common threads which inspire both residents of and visitors to our one and only Isle of Avalon, modernity and spirituality, the earth, our land and our heritage. I think actually that's quite a nice summary of the Glastonbury spirit, if you will, with which to end the episode. So I can only recommend that if you'd like an interesting day out, full of a whole variety of different things to see and to experience, and bookended morning and evening by a lovely drive through the Somerset countryside, then a drive south from Bath to Glastonbury, which will take you no more than an hour, is, I think, to be highly recommended. Okay, so that finishes off the Bath series. I hope very much that you've enjoyed learning lots more about what I think we can call Britain's most beautiful Georgian city, although possibly I will get letters from the tourist boards of one or two others about that, and a glimpse at some of the very many beautiful and interesting sites not too far from Bath, so Laycock, Corsham, Wells and Glastonbury. I think foreign visitors in particular are sometimes tempted to miss out the West Country. They go to London, perhaps to Oxford, perhaps to Scotland. So I hope this series has served as a reminder that only a couple of hours on the train west of London, there are all these other goodies to enjoy. And that a few days in Bath and a couple of excursions out of the city would certainly be a lovely way to spend a week. So with that, I will sign off then and hope very much that you'll perhaps be inspired to explore one or two of my other series on Florence or Munich or St Petersburg. Have a look at the website for the full list, and hopefully also to join me for future series. Thank you very much then for listening to this, and hoping very much to enjoy your company again in the not-too-distant future. Goodbye. Goodbye.